0: Verse number 8, as we speed through this part. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse number 8. Finally, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing. Blessing. Knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, and his lips, that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. We ask, Heavenly Father, your blessing as we consider a small portion of this scripture. We ask that you lay things upon our hearts that need to be there. Perhaps we've not considered these things in some time. We know them to be true. We ask, Father, that you would make them real and true to us this evening, and that we might go from this place uh, properly equipped to bring glory to the name of our Redeemer. Bless we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'll start with a subject that I greatly enjoy. Abraham Marshall was the second pastor of the First Baptist Church in Georgia. The Keike Church was started by his father, Daniel, just outside of Augusta, not far from the uh, Savannah River and just a stone's throw from Aiken, South Carolina, where our son and his family used to live. In 1786, Abraham rode his horse from Georgia all the way up to Connecticut. He had two purposes in mind. One was to present the gospel all along the way. He preached in every Baptist church, every community, every private home that was opened up to him. He declared the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord blessed with the salvation, literally, of hundreds of souls. And many of those people were waiting for him to return from Connecticut so that they might be baptized. These people were truly born again. His second purpose was specifically to minister to his cousin, Eliakim Marshall, a man that he had never met Eliakim had been a Protestant minister for 30 years by this time, but Abraham heard that he was, quote, a man of sound judgment, strong memory, and delicate conscience. So Abraham thought to himself, well, if he has a sound, if he has a sound judgment, he will understand argument. And if he has a strong memory, he will retain it. And if he has a tender or delicate conscience, it will have an influence on him. And for these reasons, I expect to baptize him before I leave. <laughs> and he did. The man listened to his nephew and accepted the truth and became a Baptist. Abraham returned to Kiaki and resumed pastoring. But during all of this time, he had not been married, ever. He was not a married man. Six years later, at the age of 44, he decided he was going to make a return trip up to Connecticut and come back down again. Again, he had the intention of preaching the gospel. He wanted to strengthen all of the churches that he knew along the way. He wanted to minister to people out in the boonies wherever he could, and he did. And the Lord miraculously blessed once again. But on this trip, Abraham had a second purpose. He wanted to come home with a wife. He wanted to get married. On his return... He's approaching home now. He's made his way all the way up, and he's, uh, oh, a third of the way back. He, he stopped in, a, in the home of uh, Jack Waller, a pastor in Virginia. And there he met Jack's daughter, Ann Waller. After a six-day whirlwind courtship... Brother Waller officiated at the wedding ceremony between his (laughs) daughter and this uh, preacher down from down in Georgia. And thereafter, I believe it was the very next day, uh, they got on their horses and they hit the road south and that was it. I have no evidence that this is the case. So I'm using my imagination here as I quite often do. I have no evidence that this was true, but I can imagine a 44-year-old man carrying a list of character traits that he would like to find in a wife. He was not a hormonal teenager making decisions based on the beauty of the woman's face and whether or not she wanted to party. He was was a, a... A rational man in the midst of a ministry, he was looking for a helpmate in that ministry. So I can picture Abraham, I have no proof of this, I can picture this man carrying a list of things that he would like to find in the woman that he's going to ask to go with him down to Georgia. Perhaps he had met a few other ladies along the way, and out of this list of a dozen things... They had checked uh, five boxes, six boxes, seven boxes. But they just weren't, they, didn't, they weren't qualified. But when he met Anne, he started going through this list of things and he checked box one, two, three, four, 10, 11 of the twelve boxes. This was the right woman for him. Here was the woman of his dreams. Or maybe I should say the woman who met his qualifications And again, this is probably not the case, but it might have been. Peter has just given some instruction to servants in chapter 2. Wives, first part of this chapter. Then to husbands in the previous verse. Now in verse number 8, he uses the word finally. As though he was summarizing things or moving on to put a capstone on his previous instructions. In the next few verses, the verses that we have just read, we have about a dozen exhortations, some of which are given without any explanation. What if there was a box after each one of these? How many of these boxes could those people in Bithynia check? Oh yeah, I got this. This one's, well, maybe not this one. And I have this one. More practically, how many boxes could you and I check in these dozen things? That's more important than whether the people in Asia could. Metaphorically speaking, what if the Lord was looking for a wife and rode up to your house And he pulled out his little slip of paper with a dozen things and started to check off whether or not we were acceptable to take back with him to Georgia. How many boxes would we check? We don't have time to look at all of Peter's points tonight. That'll take uh, two or three or four messages. Tonight, we'll just briefly look at the first verse, which contains five of them. How many of these boxes, under your name, would the Lord check? Not just would you check, how many would the Lord check? Finally, be all of one mind. This is a common New Testament exhortation. We find it in Romans a couple of times. We find it in Corinthians, both 1 and 2. We find it in Philippians. It's pretty common to the New Testament. It obviously means agree with one another. I encourage you to all think alike. Unfortunately for the Bible student, unfortunately for us, Neither Peter nor Paul ever say, Now, this is the area in which you should all be agreed. It's just, be of one accord. Have the same mind. It's left open. Are we surprised that only one time in the Bible is it said that any group of people were of one mind once? Actually twice, but... One group of people. In Acts 2 1, just after the ascension of the Lord Jesus, and after days of united prayer, we read, When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And then a short time later, still speaking of the early, early church, and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. Acts chapter 4 and verse number 32. Why is it that only one church the Bible ever refers to as being in one accord? Out of all of the churches that we find in the word of God. Only one described that way. How was it that that growing throng of people coming from all sorts of backgrounds were for a while Of one accord, united. Could it be that they, for a time, had one single focus? They weren't looking over here and over there. They were looking at the Lord Jesus. They were looking at Christ. I went through my commentaries, the few that I have, and I found only one which offered an explanation to this united frame of mind. It said they were united in regard to faith, which I assume means they were united in regard to the faith, the things that they believed. Their unity was not in regard to uh, the length of a man's beard or whether or not he should have a beard. Who cares? It wasn't uh, that they were united about whether or not women should wear earrings. Or if their hair should be up or or down. No, that wasn't what they were united on. It was about whether or not Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and whether or not he should be presented to the lost as the Savior of the world. They were united in that. The important stuff. The Jerusalem church had one heart and one soul because there were only days removed from the actual presence of the Lord Jesus. Months, if you like, but not too long ago. The leadership of the church, from the apostles to the 70 to the 120, had walked and talked with the captain of their salvation. That church still had its priorities perfectly straight. So agreement was relatively easy. And then things develop, or is it the other way? In our great day of great diversity, how is a church unity, how is church unity and solidarity possible? How can it be achieved? First of all, isn't unity far more likely if we check all of the boxes that remain? You'll see that as we go through. When everyone is compassionate toward everyone else, when everyone is filled with brotherly love, when our hearts are tender and everyone lives courteously, singleness of heart is obtainable the problem is we're all selfish sinners we get ourselves into trouble we need the lord in order to reach any of these points and particularly this first one romans 15:5 now the god of grace and patience excuse me the god of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Jesus Christ that you may with one mind and with one mouth glorify God even the Father by Lord Jesus Christ wherefore receive you one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God may God grant you this unity of heart it's got to come from him we can't we can't manufacture it ourselves Let's say that you disagree with your brother about the day of the week in which Jesus was crucified. Was it Friday? No, it was Thursday. Oh, maybe it was Wednesday. And you argue about it. Rather than insist that you are right and your brother is wrong your first response should be humble courteousness to that person. With a recognition, you know, you might be wrong and he might be right. Give up the floor. You might be in error. When we're willing to concede to another, especially when we are willing to concede to the majority Singleness of mind is attainable. Next Peter says, finally, having compassion one of another. When I was first beginning my study of the verse, I was surprised at what my Greek expert said. I'll just summarize. As he was going through explaining this verse, he said, This word, here only in the New Testament. This word, only here and in one other verse. Here only in the New Testament. Only here in one other verse. Here only in the New Testament. In other words, this Abraham Marshall is extremely particular about the woman that he's going to take to Georgia. I mean... This list that we have in verse number 8 is unique in all the scriptures. Single words maybe maybe used one or two other places. It's almost as if no one else in the world has these same requirements. You suppose we could say that about the Lord? Only he has this high standard that he expects us to meet. I think that's reasonable. What is it to have? Compassion. The Greek word is sympathis, from which comes the English word sympathy. What is compassion? Sympathy. Have sympathy. Be sympathetic to the people who are around you. Be sympathetic to them in their needs. As an example, what made the good Samaritan good? When he saw the beaten man lying at the side of the road, on the road to Jericho, he had compassion on him. That's what the Bible says. And what did that compassion lead him to do? He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him." Had the Samaritan perhaps been beaten up and robbed at some point in time, and so when he saw this man at the side of the road, his heart just went out to him because he knew what he was suffering? We have no indication of that. No, we don't know. It appears that he simply recognized the need in another human being and went out of his way to help meet that need. And the Lord uses him as a an example of a neighborly person. Would I be incorrect to say that a compassionate person is willing to put other people above his own needs and desires? Isn't that a big part of unity within a church? The Lord Jesus has given us a reverse example of compassion. In his parable of the unmerciful servant, this is in Matthew 18, a certain king, after years of patience, decided that he was going to take account of all his servants. Among them, there was a man who owed his lord ten thousand talents. That's an astronomical sum. And he and his family were about to be sold into slavery in order to cover that debt. But this man begged his Lord for time to repay it all. And the king agreed, and the man was released to keep his promise. But the Lord stepped beyond that. Matthew 18, 27. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pennies, a hundred pence, not ten thousand talents. And he laid his hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. Now when the king heard what the man had done, he called him and said unto him, Thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? Christians are supposed to live the way their Savior lived. There's our standard, our pattern. We have been infinitely blessed through the compassion of the Lord, and He expects us to be similarly compassionate to others. The Lord wants to be able to check this box next to our name. But Christians often are far from compassionate people. I've often heard and even said, of time or two, Baptists enjoy eating their own children. Christians have to be told over and over again, "Rejoice with them, rejoice; weep with them that weep." Romans twelve fifteen. We'll return to this weeping and rejoicing in another lesson. Then Peter says, finally, love as brethren. You're probably well aware that the Apostle John is known as the the Apostle of love. His letters refer refer to love uh, quite prominently. But it needs to be pointed out that this is already the third time that Peter has referred to love the brethren. 1 Peter one twenty-two, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart, fervently. And then in the next chapter, verse 17, Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, Honor the king. There are a lot of Christians who are equally disobedient in all four of these areas. Someone says, oh, I love the brethren. Well, sadly, what that person means is, I love the brethren in an academic way. I know I'm supposed to be friendly toward them or something like that. Love which isn't Active isn't love. Inert, unresponsive love isn't love at all. I don't know what to call it. Love isn't merely a word. It requires action. It it involves deeds. Paul told the Romans in chapter 12, let love be without dissimulation. Let your love be without hypocrisy. And be kindly affectioned one to another, with brotherly love, in honor, preferring one another. In Second Peter, our apostle builds a pyramid out of several important values. This is in chapter one, verse number eight, or verse number five. "Giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. And a virtue, knowledge. And a knowledge, temperance. And a temperance, patience. And a patience, godliness. And a godliness, brotherly kindness. And a brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, That love, love for Christ, love for the brethren, love for the lost, are clear characteristics of the regenerated soul. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that ye are my my disciples, if ye have love one to another. And John added, we know that we have passed from death unto life, because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Love may be a natural product of regeneration, that new heart that the Lord gives to us, but that doesn't mean that we're experts in it, that it truly fills us, that we are motivated by it. It should fill us. Check that box. Peter goes on. Finally be pitiful Ephesians 4:32 is the only other scripture which uses this Greek word and it reads be kind one to another tender hearted forgive one another even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you the word pitiful is translated in Ephesians tender hearted James says in 5:11 Remember, the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. We could preface every one of these five, every one of these dozen uh, exhortations with the words, let's not forget that this is a blessing which you enjoy through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord has made an investment in you. Now share it. Many of us have been touched by God's grace and saved decades ago, a long time ago. Maybe it took years for us, for you, with the grace of the Holy Spirit, to throw off that one particular devastating sin that you had, that weakness that you possessed. But that was years ago. You've gotten some victory in your life now. and As a result, those sins are no longer menacing your every step. But we have Christian brethren who are still struggling with that same addiction and with those same temptations that once plagued our lives. Like that wicked servant in Jesus' parable, we are to be tender-hearted, pitiful Toward that other person. Shouldest thou not. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant. Even as I had pity upon you. The last thing in this verse is. Finally. Be courteous. One to another. One of my commentaries explained Peter this way. This speaks about genuine Christian Politeness. Not the tinsel of the world's politeness. This is stamped with unfeigned love on one side and humility on the other. Humble minded. It's slightly different from simply being humble in that it marks a conscious effort to be truly humble. Here is something which I think sheds light on all of the other points in the lesson. When we choose to be humble, when we behave in a humble fashion, we will be pitiful, we will be tender-hearted, we will be courteous and polite. This will paint our love of the brethren in brighter colors. More recognizable. When we look at ourselves in a humble way, we will not be pushing our agenda. We won't be pushing our wishes and our minor doctrines. We won't be aggressively assertive. We won't be interruptive. We will stop and hear what that other person has to say, even though we want to complete our own train of thought. I know a lot of Christians who very simply are not polite people. Their mothers didn't train them right. Their spirit didn't train them right. They're filled with their own egos. How many of Peter's five boxes have we been able to check? Finally, be all of one mind. Check. Having compassion one of another. Check. Love as brethren. Check. Be pitiful. Check. Be courteous. Check. Uh, Is the Lord going to take us with him to Georgia? Leave us here.